You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. All right. Hello, everyone. Uh, I am starting us off this week. Welcome back. Um, Thank you. Now, yeah, Good to be back. Oh, it's going to be great. So we've joked on this show about a variety of places that we would like to go and visit as like a group. Um, especially, Uh uh, especially some of the places that keep cropping up on the podcast. So, so let's imagine that we've done just that. We're in a group vacation. It's very fun. Uh, we made it to New Zealand. (laughs) Yes. I really want to go to New Zealand, so that sounds great. I would love to go to New Zealand. Um, and all three of us are exploring the gorgeous woods of maybe like the Wapua Forest on the northwest coast. Okay, Ooh, so like okay. way up there. Beautiful. We're having a great time. Uh, we're probably understandably geeking out, uh, having a <laughs> wonderful time with binoculars True. and hiking through the woods. Uh, when one of us, say, maybe Victoria, okay. um, notices uh, something <laughs> that is a little new to us, uh, might even be, might be some white eggs on the ground. We don't quite know. I mean, we are in a new country, so lots of new things. <laughs> okay. White eggs. All right. What, what size uh-huh. of eggs are we talking about? Insect, bird, reptile? Good question. Uh, so we we go and we investigate, and they're not like super big. They're maybe an inch or two or so. Um, okay. okay. But they're not eggs. Are they're they not guys? You just said they were eggs, Rachel. I know. They, so they look. They so look they like look an egg, like but this egg. is not an egg. It's yeah. not okay. an egg. Um, growing out of some leaf litter, we spot a fungus that we've never seen before okay, okay um cool. so go ahead and check out uh the picture yeah you've got a picture here for us let me see. oh yeah yikes um okay. let me just describe what we're seeing here go for it i don't think this looks like an egg it looks like something uh, the left half looks like it has sort of a, a like almost like a snail shell type coating on it Mm-hmm. And the right half looks like mucus or a pile of snot or something Ew. with some sort of alien creature growing inside of it. I can't tell if it's like an animal or a plant or there's like some little red lines that could be like little legs of like some sort of creature. Mm-hmm. This looks like something someone finds on an alien planet in a movie. Um, and someone says, we probably shouldn't touch that. And then, of course, <laughs> someone touches it. And then, you know, the entire movie uh, is them being devoured by, you know, whatever this creature is. Right. How did I how did I do? Yeah, it definitely looks like there's an alien creature about to hatch out of it. Uh, okay. For sure. 
Yeah. Possibly it, like a land-based giant squid. Hmm. Oh, a land-based a land-based Awful. giant squid who is going to take up residence like in your chest cavity. Absolutely. But but it doesn't look like super weird though, right? Like it does, but like okay. I don't know. It's pretty weird. <laughs> it looks pretty yeah, weird. Yeah. <laughs> so we kind of leave that and we go further up the path and we notice something similar to this. Okay. But this time, go ahead and look at image number two. Ones. Image number two okay, and three. We'll check out image number two here. Oh, and three. Oh. Oh no. Oh gosh. <laughs> oh. Okay. This yeah. is even more terrifying now. Oh, God. Uh, you the know, creature when is emerging. You <laughs> said oh. that it was an emer- it looks like something's ready to emerge. Well Yeah. I was it pretty did. right. Oh gosh. Yeah. How do we how um, do we describe this? It actually, I feel like there, there is an actual horror movie that this reminds me of, but I'm, I'm oh, trying sure. to remember what it is. Uh, is, it, is it the, uh, it's a little the bit like little, the, sh- the, the, the video tremors or like the, uh, oh, no. the, one the big mouth coming from, up from underground kind of a little, like little shop of horrors, um, yeah. crossed with a Demogorgon from stranger mm, uh-huh. things actually. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So it's, it's got like three little shop of horrors, but not cute. More like um, yeah, some sort of uh, eldritch horror. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, this is awful, Rachel. This is yeah. So there's you're there's pointy red, mucusy looking spikes emerging from the egg. Mm-hmm. Um, three or four of them, and they've got uh, so it's it's kind of a mottled red color, and then there are these. Blackish, very, flesh, very fleshy. Yeah, black yeah. mucusy-looking strings still attached to the different the 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 the, the, the tentacles that are poking up. And I think those That's those good, look like sharp black teeth. I mean, they're yeah. not obviously. There's some sort of like gooey stuff, but it looks like black, like uh, blood-covered teeth. It's yeah, horrible. yeah. You're welcome. Um, so. Generally what are we speaking, looking at? This is a fungus, uh, it looks, right? It is a fungus. Um, so generally speaking, there's anywhere from four to eight of those reddish arms that come out of the original shell, um, <sighs> protruding up and out uh, vertically about four inches or so. Okay, so it's not a huge okay. fungus, but it's, mm-hmm. it's decent. Uh, what we're seeing is called Clotharis. Archie, hold on, Clotharis Archiari, we're going to go okay. with it, uh, also known as Octopus Stinkhorn or Devil's Fingers. Oh, yeah, it's there a Stinkhorn, of course it's a Stinkhorn. Octopus Stinkhorn, <laughs> I mean. They're always the yeah. worst. Um, you know, the, the final form, uh, the, this third picture <laughs> you have presented us yes. with. Is is kind of pretty. I mean, it's not. It is. Uh, is doesn't look as slimy and horrifying and like something in the. The second one looks like something literally bursting out of someone's stomach. The last yeah. ones, it's not. It's yeah. It's just kind of. Pre- it's kind of pretty. Although it does yeah. look like somebody took a blowtorch to it because it has these black blackened areas. Yeah. It looks it really does. charred at this point. Those uh, have a purpose, actually. 
those blackened oh, areas. Uh, so as the common name uh, suggests, it is a stinkhorn fungus. Um, the secondary arm stage, as it is actually called, um, starts connected together, and as it emerges from the egg stage, also what it is actually scientifically called, uh, until they reach about 10 centimeters in length, and eventually they separate and open up into those arms with like a dark olive-colored gloop called gleba. So the gleba... What now? Gleba? Gleba. With a B, bleba? Gleba with a G. Gleba with a G. Oh, with a G. Okay. Gleba. Okay. Gleba. All that right. was had to get that down. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, now, the gleba is a bit slimy and when mature, smells of rotting flesh. Sure, it oh, does. Of course it does. Yeah. <laughs> it's a stinkhorn. Uh, it's a stinkhorn. So the gleba actually has the spores of the fungus in it so it yeah. wants to be picked up and taken away by flies flies yeah um that makes sense absolutely and it spreads really really well it's actually um this particular fungus has become naturalized in north america uh and you really yeah north america and is considered invasive in europe uh, it can be found anywhere from, uh, it's thought to originate in New Zealand and Australia and Southern Africa, but it's been found just about everywhere now. Uh, it really likes the duff layer. It is a saprophyte, so it eats all of the dead stuff. <laughs> gotcha. Um, dead of course, plant stuff. It, all dead plant stuff. Now, of course, the big question on everyone's mind can we eat this? That, that was not. <laughs> actually had not occurred to me to want to eat it. Other way around. Other way around. Will this eat me was the question I was wondering. Oh, Not can I eat it? <laughs> well, first of all, uh, if you are thinking, can we eat it? Gross. Why do you want to have a zombie experience? Why? Why? Awful. Um, Second, this is like the aforementioned movie I talked about. Exactly. Second, to quote the mycology website, uh, mycoweb.com uh, who did do this uh, it is edible in the egg stage but of inferior quality one of us has tried it and found the texture and flavor very disagreeable okay so, thank so you it's for not going to kill you but you don't want to <laughs> yeah. eat it no basically. it's pretty much the general consensus is why would you want to but for the most part uh, <laughs> it's not going to kill you but it is going to not be pleasant the entire time. <laughs> if you were starving, you could eat it. Yeah, yeah, I suppose. Good. <laughs> Good. Um, God, I'm just trying to think of a joke oh. here with like, you know, uh, comparing it to a certain restaurant. Like you can eat everything there, but it's ed technically edible. If you're starving, you could eat it. But I, I figure any restaurant I would name, we could get sued. So I'm just, I'm yeah, just going to keep my mouth shut. Yeah. Mm. Uh, well, that's what I have for you both this week. The octopus stinkhorn. Um, my sources this week were iNaturalist, Wikipedia, uh, National Geographic, and uh, the Myco web. Uh, we are going to take a quick break, and when we return, it'll be Victoria. Victoria. <laughs> 
So a fun little thing here, you guys. We uh, Before we get on to Victoria's story, we got mm-hmm. uh, a letter from one of our listeners. Incidentally, there's a bunch of ways you can get a hold of us. I mean, you can talk with us on Twitter. You can talk with us on Instagram and Facebook. Email contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. Um, you can get us on Mastodon now. We are at... Uh, at strange by nature at mstdn.party on Mastodon. Um, but someone reached out to us through the Podbean uh, app. You can also get us, get us there. And unfortunately, this person did not leave their name because uh, their username is just sort of gibberish. Uh, but they said, uh, so interesting that goldfinches smell like maple syrup. They're referencing uh, one of our episodes where I talked about that. Uh, Mm -hmm. They said, in fact, I found your podcast while I was searching the internet to find an answer to my question. I have a pet cockatiel. He is 27 years old, and he usually smells kind of like dry grain or seed. It's a nice smell. However, lately, every time we go on holidays, sometimes for more than a month, his smell changes to maple syrup. His diet is unchanged. He does not appear to be stressed, just in a different location. Why the change in smell? It's a great that's question. That's super wow. cool that's super fascinating. Adding into our sort of maple syrup mystery smell for uh, birds. You know, the, this person did say uh, that the, the bird is not stressed. But I have to wonder now if I, I was smelling maple syrup smell on birds that had been bird banded. So they've been yeah. you know, captured. They're being handled. That's a stressful situation. Uh, and I got to imagine going on vacation with your with a human family, you know, being taken on a holiday to a new location, even if the bird is not displaying some signs of stress, I gotta imagine that's a slightly stressful experience for a bird. Um, so now I'm kind of wondering, is there some sort of um, connection between stress and this smell in birds? So huh. super fascinating. Uh, no answers, but you know, I love that we're putting this out there and we're getting, uh, you know, other people are making observations. We're adding to the data. So maybe someday we'll have this mystery figured out by episode, you know, 200 or something. We'll, maybe we'll know. So, someone will uh, start researching this and we'll figure it out. That would be amazing. We just yep. need a we'll f- specialist in bird metabolism to right. get on this problem. If, uh, if you are a specialist in bird metabolism or if you have any sort of questions for us and, and want to have a comment on the show, go ahead and contact us through any of those uh, different ways. And we look forward to hearing from you guys. We love to hear what you're thinking about and what you think of the show. So we are going to take things away and uh, go back to Victoria. All right, we're back. So Kirk... As someone who used to work at an aquarium and Rachel as someone who is really into sea creatures, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to introduce you both to a scientist you probably have never heard of who uh, made, made possible a huge amount of the kind of detailed data that we know about the lifestyles of different marine animals. Okay. May I present Jean Vilpre Power, a French marine biologist and the inventor of the aquarium tank. You assume oh. I've never heard of this person, and you're right, I haven't. <laughs> <laughs> nope, completely new information, but that's really cool. Invented the aquarium tank. I mean, someone had to, I suppose. Someone had really, to, and she never did. Really occurred to me that Didn't someone just did that. Appeared. Well, I mean, that goes for just about everything. Somebody had to yes. invent it. 
Uh, well, Jeanne took an unlikely path to her science career. She was born in 1794 in central France, and she was the daughter of a shoemaker. And at age 18, she traveled to Paris uh, to take up work as a high-end dressmaker. Mm-hmm. And she was, she was very successful. Uh, she, for example, made the wedding dress for an Italian princess who married into the French royal family. That's that sounds pretty successful. Yeah. yeah. She eventually met and married an English merchant, and they moved to Sicily. And in Sicily, she became fascinated with the island's geology, archaeology, and natural history, and especially its marine life, uh, particularly cephalopods. And she also actually published a couple of natural and historical guides to Sicily in Italian. Uh, Very cool. That's amazing. Yeah. As she, as she went on there, she began to focus more and more on cephalopods, um, but she was frustrated by not being able to view them up close underwater. Mm-hmm. So she invented the aquarium <laughs> and pioneered do. its Water. use as a tool of scientific study. Oh, I love women yeah. scientists. Pretty great. She so great. was particularly interested in a cephalopod that is sometimes known as a paper nautilus. Um, It's also known as the Argonaut, full Mm -hmm. name. Um, In spite of the name, the paper nautilus is not actually a nautilus. It is not closely related to the chambered nautilus. In fact, it is an octopus. Are you saying that a common name is not scientifically accurate? I know. Shocking. Hold the press. Shocking. Shocking. Um, Never happened It is, in fact... It's a really weird octopus, not a nautilus. A uh, weird octopus? Okay, okay. Yeah. I'm in. I was already in, but I'm, ar- I'm more yeah. in. More so in. just a quick uh, explanatory note for those of us who are not super familiar with the chambered nautilus. You've probably seen its shell. Uh, it's, yeah. It can be about 16 to 20 centimeters long. That's like six to eight inches. And if you cut it in half lengthwise, it forms this perfect logarithmic spiral with different chambers inside that's the name um mm-hmm. and it's all lined in mother of pearl it's very beautiful uh the shell is produced so the nautilus is a cephalopod it's related to you know octopuses and squid uh and cuttlefish it has a mantle producing this shell similar to other mollusks so like an oyster or a clam so the composition is similar it's made of a mineral called aragonite it's just okay. like a typical, oh, sure. okay. typical mollusk shell in terms of its composition. The paper right. nautilus, or we're, we're actually going to call it the Argonaut. Um, the Argonaut produces and swims around in a shell that has a remarkably similar shape to the chambered nautilus. Okay. As you might guess from the name, though, the shell is quite thin and fragile, and it has a kind of a crinkled papery quality to it. Oh, oh. cool. Okay. Yeah. So when Jean was studying in Sicily, it had long been thought that Argonauts collected and used other animal shells like hermit crabs do. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Okay. But using her aquarium, she was able to observe the Nautilus making her own shell uh, using this. The actually two of her arms have special pads on the tip that secrete a very thin layer of the mineral calcite which is what Whoa. the shell is made of. That's so cool. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah. So just like imagine if you had the ability to build something by 
using the sweat on your fingertips. <laughs> it's like oh. your fingertips were 3D printers. You could just like run yes. your fingers over a surface and create something. That would be amazing. I would love that. Oh. And it is, it is only the female Argonauts that make a shell. So okay. what, when a female Argonaut's ready to mate, she builds the shell as an egg case. She lays the eggs oh, in it. Wow. She actually grabs an air bubble from the surface and puts it inside the shell for buoyancy, and then she climbs in after it. <laughs> oh my and so God. she's all okay. kind of all kind of squished up, squished up inside the shell with her, um, you know, her eyes and her ends of her tentacles sticking out. And then she bobs around the ocean because the shell now has buoyancy, uh, right. looking for a mate. And male argonauts. Uh, we actually don't really know what they look like. We've never seen one. Um, oh, okay. Sure. Okay, hold on. If we've never seen one, how do we know they don't have shells? Well, male Argonauts don't just squirt a little sperm and leave. They actually have a special okay. limb that they use for depositing sperm. Oh, and it is, it is detachable. Pretty co- uh, it's left behind, yeah. Yes. They take off their own arm, give it to the female who sticks it inside the egg case. Um, probably he dies at that point, but nobody really knows <laughs> because we've never seen one. We've only yeah, seen actually need a bigger one. We need a bigger aquarium. Yeah, the early scientists who thought that um, Argonauts were like um, hermit crabs, they found these appendages inside the egg cases and thought that they were parasitic worms. <laughs> oh, I mean, oh no, they're not wrong. <laughs> but uh, Jeanne was the first to recognize them for what they are, although she thought it was actually the entire body of the male rather than just an arm. Mm. Uh, but some interesting research has actually been published recently. So it's long been thought due to the similarity in shape to the chambered nautilus that there are um, that the same genes would be used by the two species to make the shells. And okay. this would this would indicate something about the genetic relationship of octopuses and nautiluses. Because hmm, okay. if like that gene has been, if that gene to make the shell goes back to the common ancestor of the two. Sure, like it, sure. Yeah, it says something about that. Um, but a recent study by a Japanese team actually shows that the Argonaut uses another set of genes entirely. Um, so it still has like the... The chambered nautilus uses the usual shell-making genes as a as a mollusk, and the chambered nautilus still, or the uh, the argonaut still has those genes, but it doesn't use them to make its egg case. It has another set wow. of genes that it has developed. Okay, so cool. it developed this ability after splitting off from the common ancestor with the nautilus. But it is just fascinating that the form is so similar. Right. Yeah, well, form like, follows function, but that's yeah. amazing. And in addition, the paper nautilus shell, the argonaut shell, actually looks remarkably similar to the fossil shells of ancient ammonites, which were cephalopods sure, sure. that died at about 66 million years ago. Right. Wow. Okay. So it's, hmm. it's, it's a little, you know, it's, it's still a bit of a mystery, like, is there some other yeah. some other underlying genetic thing that hasn't been teased out yet about why the shell shape is so similar, or is it just as you said, Kirk? Form follows function. That's a, a form that seems to work well. Well, and there's also one thing. I, I just a personal observation that I know I made one time watching a bird build a nest, mm-hmm, um, and you're like, mm-hmm. oh, this round nest, and it, 
it w- I was struck by how much the shape of the nest was purely a function of the shape of the bird. Mm. Like, you know, it, it, mm. it's like it, the, the circumference is like, well, the bird is in there stomping its feet around and it puts its beak forward to play something and, and the wall ends up being the distance of the beak from the feet kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like it's, just, it's a yeah. structural thing. So you wonder if there's something about that form. If you have animals that have a similar body structure, if they have this ability and they go to build something, it's just going to take on that same shape because their bodies are a similar shape. And that's just the, the most you know, convenient shape to make based on their body shape. I, it's total speculation, but I mean, it's, it's yeah. interesting to figure out how, how these things could come about. Like the idea of the emergent properties of, you know, little things all being added together. Yeah, which, by the way, thought. I'm working on a uh, topic for the podcast about that, which is why that's kind of on my mind. So okay. uh, may, of course. maybe next week I'll have something to reference that. Hmm. Well, we will be interested to hear about it whenever you yeah. want to share Teaser. it with us. That is that is what I have about the Argonaut. Um, and after a break, we are going to hear from Kirk. Thanks, Victoria. That was fascinating. Thank you. You're welcome. So as a podcaster, I, of course, listen to a bunch of other podcasts. Uh, I was listening to No Such Thing as a Fish this past week, which is a fun British podcast. Uh, mm-hmm. And they brought up a topic that we haven't covered on the show, and that's lemmings. Uh, oh, these yeah. are oh, yeah. small mouse-like creatures uh, that live in the far north, and there's been a lot of misinformation about them over the years. Um, but there was a fact that they shared on their show that they really didn't dwell on very much. They just sort of mentioned it and, and moved on. But it has lived rent-free in my brain all week. Uh, Love those They facts. didn't... Yeah, and like I said, they didn't really explore the implications of the fact um, they shared, but I couldn't stop thinking about it and how to put it into perspective for our listeners. So I thought I'd do that here today. Uh, The fact they shared was that lemmings go through a boom and bust population cycle, uh, and there's roughly four years between the high and the low of this cycle. Mm -hmm. And if you compare the population numbers, uh, you'll see that there are about 1,000 times fewer lemmings at the bottom of the cycle than at the top. Wow. So That's that number, yeah, a thousand times really blew my mind. And I decided to do a little digging. So it turns out that a thousand times is the extreme. It's often mm. more like a hundred times difference. But in the extreme okay. cases, it really can be a swing that big. I suppose if you go from like a really big population to a really low low, it could be a thousand times difference. Yeah. Now, what stuck in my head all week um, I think it's partially because of the, the fact that came out about our population. Uh, it was just mm. this past couple of weeks here where humans were estimated to have hit 8 billion people yep. on Earth, yeah. which is just absolutely bonkers. Um, and Insane. interesting, a lot of people are, are predicting that this, this is the peak and that we're now going to see human population starting to shrink uh, in the future. That's, I guess we'll see. It's kind of interesting. Mm. Um, but we're also coming out of COVID. Um, and I recently covered the black plague on the show and I was, so I'm thinking about like large swings in human population numbers. So mm-hmm. this week I'm, I'm not going to do a deep dive on lemmings and how amazing they are and how unique <laughs> they are and how misunderstood they are. I just want to talk about population numbers and put it all into perspective and possibly okay. break your brains. Okay. Boy, so my brain is already broken. So this is like a, a numbers. I'm going to nerd out on numbers. Okay. So. Um, during COVID, so far, 
and this is sad, but 6.62 million people have died worldwide from the disease, uh, which is a really big bummer. Um, That's decidedly not great, but it comes out to just 0.08% of the human population. Now, we're not out of the woods yet, and that number will probably grow more, but I think it's fair to say we're close to about one-tenth of 1% of the human global population uh, dying from COVID. So how does that compare to, say, the Black Plague, right, or the bubonic death or whatever you want to call it? Um, It's thought that that killed perhaps upwards of 200 million people. Mm -hmm. Now, that is a high side estimate. Um, That's not only a lot more than COVID 6.8 million, uh, but keep in mind that the global population was smaller back then, too. So we're talking about a bigger percentage of the population. Yeah, there was only an estimated 475 million people living on Earth before the plague showed up. Compared to 8 billion. We're talking like <laughs> yeah. not, not a lot of humans, right? Um, so 475 million people living on Earth before the plague. So if we go with that high side estimate of 200 million deaths, we're looking at 44% of all humans on Earth dying from the plague. Which, uh, holy yeah, cow. I think that's, that's pro- that, that number bothers me, um, <laughs> as it should. But I mean, I also don't know how accurate that's going to be. Um, just because... There was a lot of people, uh, sources I was looking at that were saying that, you know, something like half the people in Europe died and like 30% of the people in the Middle East. Well, okay, Uh but there's a lot of other peoples in other parts of the world. So how are you getting to? Yeah. I don't know. So, but but the point is, probably the population of that general vicinity. But yeah. Yeah. So um, a lot of of people uh, died in the Black Plague. So what I was curious, though, is how does that compare to the lemming situation? Um, that's what's really been on my brain all week. We are at 8 billion humans on Earth. If we divide yeah. 8 billion by 1,000, we are left with only 8 million survivors. So if oh. the human population was to be reduced by 1,000%, that would be just 8 million people left. And imagine that happening in just four years. Uh, For perspective, eight million. Crazy. Yeah, eight million people is roughly the population of New York City. Mm hmm. Yep. So imagine everyone in the world being gone four years from now, except for the population of New York City. Although that wouldn't be just in New York City, those would be in clusters of small groups of people spread Mm -hmm. out around the world. Um, If you think about what a radical and fundamental change that would be for society. It's, it's almost unimaginable uh, and would result in total cultural, political, and economic collapse in just yeah. four years' time. That would, that would yeah. be stunning. Uh, another way to look at this is that COVID has killed all, off almost one-tenth of 1% of humans. Uh, this would be the opposite. It would be like 99.9% of the population being wiped out instead of surviving. Um, but the other weird side of the story... Whoa is that we also have to imagine the population then rebounding back up to 8 billion people again <laughs> in, just, in just four years and then crashing all <laughs> over again four years later. Um, it, humans it's, don't it's reproduce shocking. that quickly. No. Well, I'm glad you brought that up. Humans do not reproduce that quickly. So there's no way we could get 
um, that number is back up. So I did kind of do some math on that, Victoria, predictably. Um, lemmings only live for one year. And so their lifespan is about one one hundredth of how long a human can live. I know we don't all go do 100, but, you know, if right. we, it's a nice, easy number to work with. If we're generous, we can multiply those four years by 100 and then imagine that for humans, the rise and fall of the population might take 400 years, not four years. Okay. Still, okay. though, um, it would be yeah. devastating, devastating to swing between 8 billion and 8 million people every 400 years. Yeah. Uh, that would just be uh, bonkers. Now, luckily uh, for lemmings, they don't have quite the same level of social structure, economics, infrastructure, um, podcasting empires, and say food distribution <laughs> networks to maintain that we do. Uh, but it is just one more example of how nature doesn't have just one way to define success, right? Like this boom and bust pattern, it works for lemmings. Um, and likely has been working just fine for hundreds of thousands of generations. It's just how they do. Um, so we will have an, to do an actual like episode on what this boom and bust cycle for lemmings means for them and the animals that eat them. Uh, yeah. but we'll save that for another show. Um, but so just, you know, for now, even if you feel the human population is getting a bit out of control, uh, just be happy that we don't have to deal with the massive problems that would arise if we were to suddenly only have 8 million humans alive just four years from now if it, and then spring back up again, you know, four years after that. If it, that as it were, uh, fell off a cliff. Yeah. Wow. <sighs> Victoria's coming back strong with the bad jokes this week. Uh, yeah. Must have missed out. That was terrible. <laughs> was a little was, gul- yeah. golf applause. Somebody had to do it. Yeah. <laughs> Good job. Well, that's what I have this week. I uh, just wanted to throw some lemming numbers at you and think about population. Uh, we'll be back next week with more Strange Nature. Uh, thanks so much, everyone. Thanks for listening, everybody. Bye. Bye. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.